are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. As you hear my voice, I and the whole production team that make this podcast happen each and every week are taking a little holiday break to recharge and plan awesome things for the new year. So this week, enjoy a rebroadcast of the show I did with Dr. Stephanie Faubion, who is the medical director of the North American Menopause Society. We talk about the state of menopause as it is today from a medical as well as a cultural and societal perspective. And I will say that when I did this interview originally, I expected her to be more reserved, as many women in her position are. And I was pleasantly surprised at how outspoken she was and how she was very clear that we all need to push for better research on women's health and to include women in studies and how we have a whole lot of work ahead of us to make things right, especially by menopausal women. So give a listen and enjoy your holidays. All right, Dr. Fabian, I am very excited to have you on our show. So thank you for being here and giving us some of your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to ask if there's a big, broad question, like what are the biggest changes you've seen in menopause care during your career? Because I feel like someone has put the foot on the accelerator in recent years. And, you know, there's like menopause is just kind of everywhere. It's having a moment, as they say. Well, I'm delighted that it's having a moment because it hasn't had a moment for a really long time. So the fact that they're that we're talking about it now is probably the biggest change that I've seen. Um, so, you know, even 10 years ago, um, women were even embarrassed to talk about menopause. And I think that's still the case some today. I, I don't think we're fully there yet. Um, but the fact that we're having a conversation about this really important time in women's lives um, that can be quite impactful in many ways is is just so incredibly important. And I'm happy we're here. I would agree 100% with that. Um, where do you think we are going with hormone therapy at this point, because that has definitely been a conversation that has changed dramatically just in the past year or two, uh, including, you know, the bioidentical piece, which uh, I, I feel like keeps evolving with every month to month as we learn more about as, as research finally catches up or sort of catches up. Well, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So let's talk about hormone therapy and what is bioidentical? What does that mean? Um, So in terms of, of hormone therapy in general, um, the, the results of the women's health initiative trial published in 2002 um, really changed things in in many ways. And it, it brought a lot of light to what are the risks and benefits of hormone therapy, but the the way the data were published initially was very scary in that they put these risks and benefits, lump them all together for the whole cohort of women that were aged 50 to 79. And they talked about them all as one group. 
which is probably, it's not who we see in our offices. You know, who the, the woman in my office is not 79 years old most, most of the time. The woman in my office is somebody who's around 50 and just stopped her periods and is having lots of symptoms. So when they ultimately did the reanalyses of the Women's Health Initiative trial over the next 10 to 20 years, we've really learned a lot. Uh, and when we, you, we really look at it in terms of the risks and benefits for 50 to 60 year old women, which is the group of women we're seeing mostly in our offices, um, we know that the benefits most often outweigh the risks of hormone therapy for healthy women who are within 10 years of menopause onset and under the age of 60. So we've learned a whole lot and we've almost come full circle to, yes, hormone therapy is not evil. It's not horrible. And, and the benefits typically outweigh the risk for most women. Um, now let's talk about bioidentical hormone therapy. So the term bioidentical was actually sort of a made up term, but what, what they're referring to, um, is, is something that's chemically the same, chemically, structurally the same as what your body used to make. So for the human ovary, that's estradiol. That's the type of estrogen we used to make, uh, if we're menopausal and progesterone, uh, and the ovary also puts out some androgens too, but for the sake of staying with this conversation with, uh, with what we typically give for hormone therapy, there are many, many FDA approved quote unquote bioidentical forms of hormones that are available. I think what you're referring to is the compounded variety. Uh, and that's very different, not FDA regulated, uh, usually associated with all kinds of claims that most often are not true. And, and so a lot of caution has to be exercised when, when utilizing the compounded variety. And in general, most medical societies speak out against that, in, including the North American Menopause Society that whom I represent. But I, again, will emphasize that bioidentical hormones are available in many FDA approved formulations, and that is most often what is prescribed now. Excellent. Where does testosterone fit into this picture? Because I feel like it, it kind of, you know, estrogen sort of takes this big spotlight and, you know, then we talk about progesterone, but uh, testosterone outside of libido kind of gets left out of the conversation. And, and many women in, in my community, which is athletic by and large, um, report feeling much better with, with it, which isn't a surprise. It's also a bit of a sticky wicket because some of these women can be drug tested and there's not, you can't really get a therapeutic use exemption for women, you know, in sport for testosterone. So I'm, I'm wondering like where we stand now is, and what are your thoughts on are how testosterone should be considered in menopause management? Well, it really isn't a big part of menopause management. Um, so, uh, you know, when we talk about the typical symptoms of menopause, we're talking about hot flashes and night sweats and sleep disturbance and joint aches and vaginal dryness. And those symptoms are managed by estrogen. We use progesterone or progested gen. That's the bigger category, um, which does include synthetic progestins. Um, we use that in women who have a uterus because you can't take estrogen by itself because the uterine lining can grow too much and it can even form a cancer if you let it go on too long. So we use the progestogen in that case with the estrogen to help protect the uterine lining. So women who have had a hysterect hysterectomy don't need the progesterone. They can take estrogen alone. Now, why would someone consider testosterone? You mentioned libido, and that's actually the only thing that has significant data to support it. 
its use is low, uh, low sexual desire. And so that is the sole reason, according to the consensus guideline that was published last year by the International Menopause Society, after an extensive review of the literature um, that went into what is their data to support the use of testosterone for, there is no data to support its use for mood, for well-being, for building muscle mass, for helping bone density, for anything else. It's just, uh, we just have data to support its use for low libido. Okay. That's fair. And that makes sense. And again, with, with an athletic active, uh, population, their benefits might be outside of the spectrum of menopause care that they're Yeah. Seeing. That's more yeah. performance enhancing, which is uh, definitely not on the recommendation list for, for women. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Speaking of, of, of research and, and, and where we are, uh, you know, I was reading an interview with you where you mentioned that you know, women have been left out of much of the, the research landscape for a long time. You know, you even mentioned that Ambien, which surprised me, had not been studying that women. I was super surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been to read that. Um, what is it going to take for women to be studied or at least broken out in research as a matter of course? Well, in 2016, the National Institutes of Health, and, and let's just take a moment and pause 
it was only in 2016 that it was required that sex be considered in the design and, you know, execution of studies. So that was the first time that it was required that it be considered. So it is considered now, but the sad part is that a lot of the studies will be published and just put the number of men and women in there, but they don't analyze the data by sex. So we still have a lot of um, uh, potential confounding of results based on sex that is maybe not uncovered. Um, and you know, Ambien is still the only drug that has a dosing difference between men and women. So, so we typically have drugs don't get on the market by being dosed differently in men versus women. So we still have a long way to go, as you said, to make this a matter of routine and probably have to go back and look at a lot of things that we assumed were true were um, drugs that we assumed were safe in men and women um, equally and, and maybe take a second look because I, you know, results can be fuzzy and covered up when you don't look at sex. So absolutely 100% going forward. And, and I've actually contacted a couple of authors of very big studies recently uh, when they looked at drugs, for example, some of these new drugs with weight loss. Um, and I asked them if they had the data analyzed by sex and they, they don't still. Um, so sadly, I think we also have to have a standard with our journal editors that they will not allow these studies to be published without looking at that. So I think there needs to be pressure on, on people from a lot of different directions to make this happen. And women can help with that too, you know, just by going to their doctor's office and when they're given a new drug or, given, you know, recommend a test uh, for a diagnostic test, um, say, well, is it, are the results different in men than women? Has this been studied in women? Do you know if there's a difference in my disease or my treatment uh, according to sex? And, and I think we need to start asking those questions. And if people don't have answers, you know, it will, it will put pressure on the scientific community too. I really appreciate that. That's, uh, that's great advice that we, we all can take because sometimes you feel like, how can I make a difference? And that is, that is a one way that we can start or continue pushing. Yeah, yeah, pushing, pushing in that direction. You've also said that women's health is much more than quote unquote bikini medicine, which I, you know, I really love that quote. What in the menopause community specifically do you think um, would require some increased awareness? What would you like to see some increased awareness around? Well, I think one of the biggest things we've started to take a harder look at in the last couple of years is the heart disease risk in women. And we've known for a long time that, you know, the number one killer of women is cardiovascular disease. And, and so a lot of women come into my office with the perception that it's breast cancer. And I say, no, it's actually heart disease. And so um, understanding that menopause is, is a factor in that. And so um, the, the menopause transition itself um, is a bit of a risk factor in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. A lot of things start happening after menopause um, and it may be a combination of the aging process and the loss of estrogen that, that helps with that combination of risk. But, but we know that that transition 
is associated with increased risk. So women tend to gain weight. They tend to have more diabetes. They tend to have more high blood pressure. Cholesterol starts looking a little worse in terms of the bad cholesterol goes up and the good cholesterol goes down. And so overall, the big picture is that our cardiovascular risk goes up across that menopause transition. And so women need to understand this and look at it from the standpoint of what can I do? You know, I have women coming in my office all the time saying I'm gaining weight and I haven't changed anything. And I said, exactly. If you haven't changed anything, you're going to gain weight uh, across, you know, the midlife transition. That's actually more a function of aging than it is um, the loss of estrogen, but you, you can't keep things the same by doing this the same thing you've always done. So in other words, you can't, uh, people eat the same diet and they go to the gym and they might exercise for an hour or two. And I have so many women thinking they can just exercise for an hour or two and not change what they're eating and, and lose weight. And that just isn't going to happen. You have to pay attention to diet too. So the big picture is women are empowered to do something about it and watch starting way before they actually go through menopause. So as they approach midlife, they need to start really paying attention to what are their cardiovascular risk factors? Do they know what their blood pressure is running? Do they know what their cholesterol is? Do they know what their blood sugar is? Um, what is their family history? Like, are they smoking? Do they need to quit? Um, you know, all of those factors are super important. Um, maintaining a healthy lifestyle, making sure that you're paying, you're getting the, the exercise you need. Um, that may not be as much of a, a factor for your, your, um, audience, but for many women it is, um, and then paying close attention to diet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have talked about that in the show too, that, women who even, you know, we have women who do Ironman triathlons and ultras and all of that. And, you know, the body composition changes still shift. Um, but yes. there are, there are definitely ways that, you know, they can work with their changing physiology on both of those fronts and in how they change and how they fuel. So we all lose muscle mass after about the age of 50 and, and trying to help maintain that, um, is, is critically important. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. 
The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Let's let's talk a bit about mental health because uh this is something that I feel could use some more oxygen in this, in this community. You know, I've heard from women who have entered some pretty dark territory during the menopause transition. And in some cases, the hormone therapy uh, exacerbates it. Some cases it helps it, but I'm wondering, you know, there's a theory that menopause transition is maybe a window of vulnerability in this mental health space because of the hormonal shifts. And I'm wondering if there are ways that women might be able to see that coming or know if they are particularly vulnerable to this? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So, so the biggest risk factor for having a mood problem and what are we talking about? We're talking about depressed mood, but women can also get anxiety symptoms during this time, but let's just talk about depressed mood for right now. So the biggest risk factor for having depression during midlife, the, the menopause transition is having had it before. Um, so for those women who have struggled with a problem with depression in the past, those are the ones that are at the highest risk for having a problem. Again, you can also look at women who have had hormonally related mood changes like PMS mood symptoms that those are occurring when the estrogen levels fall. So when they fall again around the menopause transition, those women are at risk. Same thing for postpartum baby blues or postpartum depression that that occurs when those estrogen levels fall after pregnancy. And again, those women are at risk in the menopause transition. And if they take hormone therapy, they need to be careful when they do decide to come off it because the same thing can happen again because they're coming off estrogen again, right? So, so for the most part, um, hormone therapy is, is pretty helpful for mood symptoms. Um, and most women find that to be true. They even did a study where they tried to prevent a depression in midlife by prophylactically putting women on hormones. And it did help with that. Now, not to say that it's FDA approved for mood, it's not. So hormones are not FDA approved to treat mood disorders. But for those women who are struggling with mood, for example, in addition to hot flashes and night sweats and other symptoms, 
it might actually take care of the mood problems. If the mood problem is particularly severe, they might need an antidepressant. And I would say antidepressants are still first line therapy. Yeah, that's a great point. I've heard some, the women who have, who have spoken in my community um, have had some trouble with progesterone dialing that in. So yes and no. So um, progesterone tends to, it tends to help with sleep. Um, so actually we end up dosing it at night to help with sleep. Um, some women, uh, in my experience, particularly with the synthetic progestins, even with some of the progestin containing IUDs may struggle with that a little bit in terms of mood. Um, but more typically with progesterone that we use for postmenopausal women, less of a problem, but I, I won't say that it doesn't ever exist. Okay, great. What are you most excited about right now in menopausal care? Uh, the fact that it's getting some attention finally. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, what's exciting is that we have options for women. Um, and, and, you know, not every woman is going to want to take hormone therapy or will be a candidate to take hormone therapy. So there, there are lots of options that, that women um, have in terms of managing these symptoms, including prescription therapies and going to a provider to talk about, you know, what might be a medical option, but there's also a lot of lifestyle things that they can do. And there's, there's more opportunity for, um, you know, technological solutions. For example, Mayo Clinic is partnering with um, the Lisa Health and the Midday app we just released this week, um, where we are, we are partnering with this company that has an app and we are um, using our medical know-how um, to embed an algorithm that would tell women whether they might be a candidate for hormone therapy and then offering access to Mayo Clinic um, to see a menopause expert for those women that, that find that they want to see a doctor or having more severe symptoms or uh, want to discuss hormone therapy or other management um, for menopause symptoms. So I think the fact that things like that are now available to women, it really sort of t- uh, removes some of the barriers to care and the access issues that a lot of women have. Yeah, no, that's excellent because, you know, I hear that too, that access is sometimes an issue because you know, you have a great resource for, you know, people who have been become menopause certified practitioners, right? Which is, we, we, we push people there all the time, but um, it's a big country and not everybody has, you know, access right to them. So exactly. And, you know, uh, menopause.org is the North American Menopause Society website. It also has a locate a provider tab. And so we certify practitioners and menopause management. And so finding somebody who has knowledge who can take care of you is really important. So, um, uh, we also have, uh, good patient information on, on the website as well. So I think, you know, access to information is critical. Um, and, and I think finally we're getting to a time where people are talking about it. Um, there are more resources available for women. Um, also there, there are some new drugs in the pipeline that are not hormonal that, um, may be approved in the next year. So we may have some new therapies available, um, so it's, it's an exciting time. What are those therapies um, specifically? So the NK3 inhibitors are a class of medication that um, impact the part of the brain, the hypothalamus, where we believe hot flashes start. And so um, these are non-hormonal agents that, that seem to stop hot flashes in the, in the part of the brain where they initiate. So 
um, some exciting preliminary data. And, and uh, there's a couple of these agents that are in the final stages before they would be FDA approved. So hopefully we'll see something soon. If you were to pull out your crystal ball, where do you see us in even five years with menopausal care for women? In five years, I think we're going to be able to talk about it more. I think we're going to be having a lot of conversations in the workplace about it. So I think employers are going to have to engage with women. And uh, I think we're where we were with pregnancy about 30 years ago um, and talking about it in the workspace. And so I think we're going to be having a lot more conversations about what menopause means for women, more common everyday not behind closed doors discussions and, and the symptoms that come with it. And uh, we'll, we'll have more solutions hopefully as well. And, and more women will be seeking care because right now the majority of women are suffering through their symptoms without, without getting any help. And, and where do you think, because my sense is even myself, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was perimenopausal. I'm post now, but I had no idea. And I'm a health and fitness writer. (laughs) that anxiety was, was a sim- like, I, I just thought like I was coming undone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary. And I think we need to do a better job of educating women before they go into the transition to say, here's what you might experience. Not that you will, but you know how we ha- give girls the talk before they're about to start their periods. We don't give women the talk before they're about to stop their periods. And I think it's an equally tumultuous time. And so I think there are several barriers to to doing that because women go through menopause at varying ages, right? So it's hard to pin down exactly when you need to give the talk. And then finding a practitioner or provider who is capable of giving the talk (laughs) is a whole other issue. Um, But I think we need to get there. Maybe you should record a talk for us. I do that. That's, that's what I and my colleagues are doing is trying to spread the word about it. But I think it's going to take a lot more public conversations uh, uh, about it to where we can all have this conversation and everybody knows what to expect when they enter this phase of life. Because, you know, the bottom line is symptoms may last a while, right? Um, we used to think it was a year or two, don't worry about it. But we now know it's seven to nine years is the is the mean uh, duration of symptoms and a good third of women are going to hot flash for a decade or more. So it's not like you can just wait it out. Um, that, that probably is not an option for most women. So hopefully we'll, we'll be in a different place five years from now. Yeah. I I'm optimistic. You know, there's a lot of people talking, uh, I will be at the conference and do my part to spread the word, you know, once, well, thank you for, for uh, doing your part. And, and that this is part of it, really, is getting the word out there. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week for one more holiday rebroadcast with Dr. Carla Girolamo. We talk all about menopausal hormone therapy, what it is, what it does, what it doesn't do, and whether or not we should all be on it. So come on back for that one. And until then, happy holidays and stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. 
Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.